The Second Epistle of Peter Introduction Second Peter breathes Christ and awaits his consummation. E. G. Homrighausen 1. Unique Place in the Canon The above introductory quotation is especially significant because its author, like so many today, denies that Peter wrote the epistle. He also admits that what we have is Petrine in character and spirit. Ironically, these two statements sum up the unique contribution of 2 Peter very succinctly. Amid the encroaching darkness of apostasy this short letter is looking forward to our Lord's coming. It is personally reminiscent of Peter's life and personality, yet does indeed breathe Christ to those who will let the little letter speak for itself. 2. Authorship A leading conservative American NT scholar recently said, 2 Peter, like Daniel and Isaiah in the OT, is where we separate the men from the boys as to strict orthodoxy in biblical criticism. Modern commentators often do not even seek to disprove the Petrine authorship of 2 Peter, they assume it is a proven fact that Peter did not write the epistle. There are more serious problems in accepting this book as authentic than any other NT book, but they are definitely not as strong as they are presented. External Evidence The usual citations of Polycarp, Ignatius, and Irenaeus cannot be mustered for 2 Peter. However, if, as the early church taught, Jude is after 2 Peter, we have a first-century attestation of 2 Peter in the Epistle of Jude, see Introduction to Jude. The German scholar Zahn thinks we need no other. Next to Jude, Origen is the first one to quote 2 Peter, and he is followed by Methodius of Olympus, a martyr under Emperor Diocletian, and Fumilian of Caesarea. Eusebius admits that the majority of Christians accepted 2 Peter, whereas he himself had doubts. The Muratorian canon lacks 2 Peter, but it also lacks 1 Peter, and furthermore it is a fragmentary document. While Jerome was aware of doubts as to 2 Peter's authenticity, he, along with the other leading church fathers, Athanasius and Augustine, accepted it as genuine. The whole church followed suit till Reformation times. Why is 2 Peter much more weakly attested externally than other books? First of all, it is short, apparently not widely copied and does not contain much unique material. This latter point is an argument in its favor, books by heretics always added doctrine contradicting or at least strangely supplementing apostolic doctrine. This suggests perhaps the main reason for the caution regarding 2 Peter in the early centuries, there were several pseudepigrapha false writings using Peter's name to promote Gnostic heresies such as the Apocalypse of Peter. Finally, it is important to know that while 2 Peter was one of several books questioned by some antilegomena, it was never rejected as spurious by any church. Internal Evidence Those who reject Petrine authorship emphasize the difference in style between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Jerome explained this as due to Peter's using a different amanuensis. However, the difference is not really as great between 1 Peter and 2 Peter as it is between the two epistles together against the rest of the NT. Both epistles use a wide, colorful vocabulary that has many coincidences with Peter's sermons in Acts and events in his life. The references to events in Peter's past occurring in the book are used both for and against traditional authorship. Some who reject Petrine authorship say there should be more allusions, others say there are too many not to have been planned by a forger. But what would be the reason for forging such a book? While those rejecting authenticity have been most creative in attempting theories, no satisfactory ones have yet been produced. 
but as we study the epistle, we find several internal evidences that Peter was indeed the author. In 1 verse 3, the writer speaks of believers as having been called by the Lord's own glory and virtue. This takes us back to Luke 5 verse 8 where the glory of the Lord so overpowered Peter that he cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When the writer gives a prescription whereby his readers may never stumble, 1 verses 5 to 10, we think immediately of Peter's fall and of the sorrow it brought him. Chapter 1 verse 14 is especially significant. The writer had been told of his death by the Lord Jesus. This fits perfectly with John 21 verses 18 and 19 where Jesus revealed to Peter that he would be killed in his old age. In verses 13 to 15 of chapter 1, the words tent, tabernacle, and decease, exodus, are both words used by Luke in the account of the transfiguration, Luke 9 verses 31 to 33. One of the most convincing proofs that Peter wrote this epistle is the reference in 1 verses 16 to 18 to the transfiguration. The writer was present on the holy mountain. This means that he was either Peter, James, or John, Matthew 17 verse 1. This second letter claims to have been written by Peter, 1 verse 1, not by James or John. In 2 verses 14, 18 we find the words enticing and allure. They come from the word deligo, to catch with allure. They are from the vocabulary of a fisherman, and are thus especially appropriate from Peter. In 3 verse 1 the author refers to a previous letter, which is probably 1 Peter. He also speaks in 3 verse 15 of Paul in very personal terms, which an apostle could certainly do. A final word that harks back to Peter's experience is found in 3 verse 17. The word steadfastness comes from the same root as the word strengthen which Jesus used in Luke 22 verse 32. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It is also found as established in 1 Peter 5 verse 10 and 2 Peter 1 verse 12. Finally, as in the pastoral epistles, we suspect that Peter's trenchant condemnation of apostates has drawn out much of the modern hostility to 2 Peter as a genuine product of the apostle's life and pen. As we study the epistle, we may find other internal evidences that link it with the Apostle Peter. But the important thing is to turn to the letter and see what the Lord is saying to us through it. 3. Date The date of 2 Peter obviously hinges on its authenticity. Those who believe it is a forgery choose some date in the 2nd century. Since we conclude that the Church was correct in recognizing 2 Peter as canonical, both from a historical and a spiritual perspective, we would assign a date shortly before Peter's death, A.D. 67 or 68, that is, 66 or 67. 4. Background and Themes Two main strands that militate against one another show up clearly in the fabric of the Apostles' letter, the prophetic word, 1 verses 19 to 21, and Libertinism, chapter 2. Already on the horizon Peter sees false teachers who will bring in destructive heresies that allow loose and licentious lifestyles. These are people who ridicule the idea of coming judgment, 3 verses 1 to 7. What is seen as future in Peter's day is seen as having crept in by Jude's epistle, verse 4. When Christendom lost its love for Christ's coming and settled down in the world, under Constantine and following, the morals of the church went plummeting. The same is true today. The 19th century awakening of interest in prophetic truth is waning today in many circles and the loose living in some churches shows that Peter was inspired to write much-needed truth for the entire Christian era. Chapter 1 
Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so near-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 Commentary I Salutation 1 verses 1, 2 1 verse 1 Simon Peter introduces himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. At once we are struck by his simplicity and humility. He was a bondslave by choice, an apostle by divine appointment. He uses no pompous titles or symbols of status. He has only a grateful acknowledgement of his obligation to serve the risen Savior. All we are told about those to whom the letter was written is that they had obtained the same precious faith as Peter and his colleagues. This may indicate that he was writing to Gentile believers, the point being that they had received the same kind of faith as believing Jews, a faith that was in no way deficient. 
All who are saved by the grace of God enjoy equal acceptance before Him, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, male or female, slave or free. Faith means the sum total of all they had received when they embraced the Christian faith. He goes on to explain that this faith is by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He means that it was a righteous thing for God to give this faith of equal standing to those who believe on the Lord Jesus. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection provide a just basis upon which God can show grace to sinners through faith. The debt of sin has been fully paid and now God can justify the ungodly sinner who believes on his Son. The title Our God and Savior Jesus Christ is one of many in the NT which indicate the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus. If he is not God, then these words have no meaning. 1 verse 2 The Apostle's lofty prayer for his readers is that grace and peace might be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He wants them to have this knowledge by the sustaining, empowering grace of God in their everyday lives. He wants their hearts to be guarded by the peace of God that passes all understanding. But this is not to be given in small doses. He desires these blessings to be multiplied in volume, not added in small segments. How can these blessings be multiplied? It is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The better we know God, the more we experience grace and peace. We do better by dwelling in the secret place of the Most High than by making occasional visits there. Those who live in the sanctuary rather than in the suburbs find the secret of God's grace and peace. 2. Cultio develop strong Christian character, 1 verses 3 to 21. 1 verse 3. This passage should be of immense interest to every Christian because it tells how we can keep from falling in this life and how we can be assured of a triumphal entry into the next. First we are assured that God has made full provision for us to have a life of holiness. This provision is said to be an evidence of His power, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Just as His power saves us in the first place, so His power energizes us to live holy lives from then on. The order is, first life, then godliness. The gospel is the power of God to save from the penalty of sin and from its power, from damnation and from defilement. The all things that pertain to life and godliness include the high priestly work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the activity of angelic agencies on our behalf, the new life we receive at conversion, and the instruction of the Word of God. The power to live a holy life comes through the knowledge of Him who called us. Just as His divine power is the source of holiness, so the knowledge of Him is the channel. To know Him is eternal life, John 17 verse 3, and progress in knowing Him is progress in holiness. The better we get to know Him, the more we become like Him. Our calling is one of Peter's favorite themes. He reminds us that, 1. We have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. 2. We have been called to follow Christ in a pathway of suffering, 1 Peter 2 verse 21. 3. We have been called to return blessing for reviling, 1 Peter 3 verse 9. 4. We have been called to His eternal glory, 1 Peter 5 verse 10. 5. We have been called by glory and virtue, 2 Peter 1 verse 3. This last reference means that He called us by revealing to us the wonders of His person. Saul of Tarsus was called on the road to Damascus when he saw the glory of God. A later disciple testified, I looked into his face and was forever spoiled for anything that was unlike him. He was called by his glory and excellence. 1 verse 4. 
Included among the all things which God's power has given to promote a life of holiness are His exceedingly great and precious promises in the Word. It is estimated that there are at least 30,000 promises in the Bible. John Bunyan once said, The pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. The promises of God are the last of seven precious things mentioned by Peter in his letters. Our faith is more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1 verse 7. The blood of Christ is precious, 1 Peter 1 verse 19. Christ, the living stone, is precious in God's sight, 1 Peter 2 verse 4. He is precious also as the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2 verse 6. To all who believe, he is precious, 1 Peter 2 verse 7. The imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight, 1 Peter 3 verse 4. And finally, the promises of God are precious, 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Think of some of the promises that relate to the life of holiness. 1. Freedom from sin's dominion, Romans 6 verse 14. 2. Grace that is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. 3. Power to obey his commands, Philippians 4 13. 4. Victory over the devil, James 4 verse 7. 5. Escape when tempted, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. 6. Forgiveness when we confess our sins, 1 John 1 verse 9, and forgetfulness too, Jeremiah 31 verse 34. 7. Response when we call, Psalm 50 verse 15. No wonder Peter says the promises of God are precious and very great. These promises enable the believer to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has promised all that we need to resist temptation. When passionate cravings come, we can claim the promises. They enable us to escape from the world's corruption, its sexual sin, its drunkenness, its filth, its misery, its treachery, and its strife. The positive side is that by these same promises we may be partakers of the divine nature. This takes place primarily at the time of conversion. Then as we live in the practical enjoyment of what God has promised, we become more and more conformed to His image. For instance, He has promised that the more we think about Him, the more we will become like Him, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We make this promise a reality by reading the Word, studying Christ as He is revealed in it, and following Him. As we do this, the Holy Spirit changes us into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. 1 verse 5. Verses 3 and 4 show that God has given us all that is necessary for the divine life. Because He has, we must be diligent in cultivating it. God does not make us holy against our will or without our involvement. There must be desire, determination, and discipline on our part. In the development of Christian character, Peter assumes faith. After all, he is writing to Christians, to those who have already exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus. So he does not tell them to furnish faith, he assumes that they already have it. What is necessary is that faith be supplemented by seven elements of holiness, not adding these one after another, but manifesting all the graces all the time. Tom Olson's father used to read the passage to his sons as follows. Add to your faith the virtue or courage of David, and to the courage of David the knowledge of Solomon, and to the knowledge of Solomon the patience of Job, and to the patience of Job the godliness of Daniel, and to the godliness of Daniel the brotherly kindness of Jonathan, and to the brotherly kindness of Jonathan the love of John. Lenski suggests.
The list of seven is arranged with reference to the pseudo-prophets, 2 verse 1, and to the way in which they live according to their pretended faith. For praise they supply disgrace, for knowledge, blindness, for self-control, libertinistic license, for perseverance in good, perseverance in evil, for godliness, ungodliness, for fraternal friendliness, dislike for God's children, for genuine love, its terrible absence. The first characteristic is virtue. This may mean piety, goodness of life, or moral excellence, though these seem to be covered later by the word godliness. It may also be that virtue here means spiritual courage before a hostile world, the strength to stand for what is right. We think of the courage of the martyrs. Archbishop Cranmer was ordered to sign a recantation or be burned at the stake. At first he refused, but then under enormous pressure, his right hand signed the recantation. Later he realized his mistake and notified his executioners to start the fire. At his own request, his hands were untied. Then he held his right hand in the fire and said, This is the hand that wrote it, and therefore it shall suffer punishment first. This hand hath offended. Perish this unworthy right hand, for. Courage is to be supplemented with knowledge, especially the knowledge of spiritual truth. This emphasizes the importance of studying the Word of God and obeying its sacred precepts. More about Jesus in His Word. Holding communion with my Lord. Hearing His voice in every line. Making each faithful saying mine. Through an experiential knowledge of the Bible we develop what Erdman calls practical skills in the details of Christianity. 1 verse 6. God calls every Christian to a life of discipline. Someone has defined this as the controlling power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. There must be discipline in prayer, discipline in Bible study, discipline in the use of time, discipline in curbing bodily appetites, discipline in sacrificial living. Paul exercised such self-control. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified, 1 Corinthians 9 verses 26 and 27. Audubon, the great naturalist, was willing to undergo prolonged discomfort to learn more of the world of birds. Let Robert G. Lee tell it. He counted his physical comforts as nothing compared with success in his work. He would crouch motionless for hours in the darkened fog, feeling himself well rewarded, if, after weeks of waiting he secured one additional fact about a single bird. He would have to stand almost to his neck in the nearly stagnant water, scarcely breathing, while countless poisonous moccasin snakes swam past his face, and great alligators passed and repassed his silent watch. It was not pleasant, he said, as his face glowed with enthusiasm, but what of that? I have the picture of the bird. He would do that for the picture of the bird. Because of the example of others, the urgent needs of a perishing world, the personal peril of wrecking our testimony, we should discipline ourselves so that Christ will have the best of our lives. Self-control should be supplemented with perseverance, that is, patient endurance of persecution and adversity. We need to be constantly reminded that the Christian life is a challenge to endure. It is not enough to start off in a blaze of glory, we must persevere in spite of difficulties. The idea that Christianity is an unending round of mountaintop experiences is unrealistic. There is the daily routine, the menial task, the disappointing circumstance, the bitter grief, the shattered plan. 
Perseverance is the art of bearing up and pressing on in the face of all that seems to be against us. The next virtue is godliness. Our lives should be like God, with all that means in the way of practical holiness. There should be such a supernatural quality in our conduct that others will know we are children of the Heavenly Father, the family likeness should be unmistakable. Paul reminds us, Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, 1 Timothy 4 verse 8. 1 verse 7. Brotherly kindness identifies us to the world as Christ's disciples, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, John 13 verse 35. Love of the brethren leads to love for all mankind. This is not primarily a matter of the emotions but of the will. It is not a sentimental exhilaration to experience but a commandment to obey. In the NT sense, love is supernatural. An unbeliever cannot love as the Bible commands because he does not have divine life. It takes divine life to love one's enemies and to pray for one's executioners. Love manifests itself in giving. For instance, God so loved the world that he gave. John 3 verse 16. Christ also loved the church and gave. Ephesians 5 verse 25. We can show our love by giving our time, our talents, our treasures, and our lives for others. T. E. McCulley was the father of Ed McCulley, one of five young missionaries slain by Aka Indians in Ecuador. One night as we were on our knees together, he prayed, Lord, let me live long enough to see those fellows saved who killed our boys, that I may throw my arms around them and tell them I love them because they love my Christ. That is Christian love, when you can pray like that for the guilty murderers of your son. These seven graces make a full-orbed Christian character. 1 verse 8. There is either advance or decline in the pathway of discipleship, no standing still. There is strength and security in moving forward, danger and failure in retreat. Failure to persevere in the development of Christian character leads to barrenness, unfruitfulness, blindness, short-sightedness, and forgetfulness. Barrenness. Only the life lived in fellowship with God can be truly effective. The guidance of the Holy Spirit eliminates barren activity and ensures maximum efficiency. Otherwise, we are shadowboxing or sewing without thread. Unfruitfulness. It is possible to have considerable knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet to be unfruitful in that knowledge. Failure to practice what we know leads inevitably to barrenness. Inflow without outgo killed the Dead Sea, and it kills productivity in the spiritual realm as well. 1 verse 9. Short-sightedness. There are various degrees of impaired vision which are spoken of as blindness. Short-sightedness here specifies the form of blindness in which man lives for the present rather than the future. He is so occupied with material things that he neglects the spiritual. Blindness. Whoever lacks the seven characteristics listed in verses 5 to 7 is blind. He is not aware of what is central in life. He lacks discernment of true spiritual values. He lives in a dark world of shadows. Forgetfulness. Finally, the man who lacks the seven virtues has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The truth of his redemption has lost its grip on him. He is going back in the direction from which he was once rescued. He is toying with sins that caused the death of God's Son. 1 verse 10. And so Peter exhorts his readers to confirm their call and election. 
These are two facets of God's plan of salvation. Election refers to a sovereign, eternal choice of individuals to belong to himself. Call refers to his action in time by which the choice is made evident. Our election took place before the world was made, our call takes place when we are converted. Chronologically, there is first election, then call. But in human experience we first become aware of his call, then we realize we were chosen in Christ from all eternity. We cannot make our call and election more sure than they already are, God's eternal purposes can never be thwarted. But we can confirm them by growing in likeness to the Lord. By manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, we can provide unmistakable evidence that we truly belong to Him. A holy life proves the reality of our salvation. Living a holy life will keep us from stumbling. It is not a question of falling into eternal perdition, the work of Christ delivers us from that. Rather, it refers to falling into sin, disgrace, or disuse. If we fail to progress in divine things, we are in danger of wrecking our lives. But if we walk in the Spirit, we will be spared from being disqualified for His service. God guards the Christian who moves forward for Him. The peril lies in spiritual idleness and blindness. 1 verse 11 Not only is there safety in constant spiritual progress, there is also the promise of a richly provided entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter refers here not to the fact of our entry, but to the manner of it. The only basis of admission to the heavenly kingdom is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But some will have a more abundant entrance than others. There will be degrees of reward. And the rewards are here said to depend on the degree of one's conformity to the Savior. 1 verse 12. As he considered the present and eternal implications of this subject, Peter determined to keep on reminding the believers of the importance of the development of Christian character. Even if they already knew it, they needed to be constantly reminded. And so do we. Even though we are established in the present truth, there is always the danger of a preoccupied moment or a forgetful hour. So the truth must be constantly repeated. 1 verse 13. Not only was it Peter's intention, but it was his duty to stir the saints up through frequent reminders as long as he lived. He felt the fitness of keeping them from spiritual drowsiness as he approached the close of his life. 1 verse 14. The Lord had already revealed to Peter the fact that he would die in the manner in which he would die, John 21 verses 18 and 19. Many years had elapsed since then. The aging apostle knew that in the normal course of events, his death was near. This knowledge gave added impetus to his determination to care for the spiritual welfare of God's people during whatever time remained. He speaks of his death as laying aside his earthly dwelling or putting off his body or tent. Just as a tent is a temporary dwelling for travelers, so the body is the structure in which we dwell during our pilgrimage on earth. In death the tent is taken down. At the rapture, the body will be raised and changed. In its eternal, glorified form the body is spoken of as a building and a house, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. The fact that Peter knew he would die does not negate the truth of the imminent return of Christ for his saints, as is sometimes argued. The true church has always expected that Christ may come at any moment. Only by a special revelation did Peter know that he would not be alive when the Lord returned. 1 verse 15. Not only did the apostle determine personally to remind the saints of the importance of spiritual progress, 
he also arranged to leave a reminder behind in permanent written form. Through his writings, the believers would be able to remind themselves at any time. As a result, Peter's letters have shed light on the path of men and women now for over 19 centuries and will continue doing so till the coming of our Savior. Also, reliable ancient tradition says that the Gospel of Mark is essentially the eyewitness reminiscences of his spiritual leader, the Apostle Peter. The importance of written ministry is clear here. It is the written word that lasts. Through the written word, a man's ministry goes on while his body is lying in the grave. The word Peter uses for decease here is the word from which we get Exodus. It is the same word used to describe the death of Christ in Luke 9 verse 31. Death is not the cessation of being but the departure from one place to another. These verses have special value to us as they show what is important to a man of God who is living in the shadow of death. These things occurs four times, verses 8, 9, 12, and 15. The great, basic truths of the Christian faith have enormous value when seen from the borders of the eternal world. 1 verse 16. The closing verses of chapter 1 deal with the certainty of Christ's coming in glory. Peter deals first with the certainty of the apostolic witness, then with the certainty of the prophetic word. It is as if Peter joins the NT and the OT and tells his readers to cling to this united testimony. He emphasizes that the apostles' testimony was based on fact, not on myth. They did not follow cleverly devised fables or myths when they made known to the readers the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The specific event to which he refers is the transfiguration of Christ on the mount. It was witnessed by three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John. The power and coming is a literary way of saying the coming in power, or powerful coming. The transfiguration was a preview of Christ's coming in power to reign over all the earth. This is made clear in Matthew's account of the event. In Matthew 16 verse 28 Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The very next verses, 17 verses 1 to 8, describe the transfiguration. On the mount, Peter, James, and John saw the Lord Jesus in the same glory he will have when he reigns for one thousand years. Before they died, those three apostles saw the Son of Man in the glory of his coming kingdom. Thus the Lord's words in Matthew 16 verse 28 were fulfilled in 17 verse 1 to 8. Now Peter is emphatic that the apostolic account of the transfiguration was not based on fables, in Greek, myths. This is the word that some modern theologians are using in their attack on the Bible. They are suggesting that we should demythologize the scriptures. Boltman spoke of the mythological element in the N.T. John A.T. Robinson called on Christians to recognize that much of the Bible contains myths. In the last century a painful but decisive step forward was taken in the recognition that the Bible does contain myth, and that this is an important form of religious truth. It was gradually acknowledged, by all except extreme fundamentalists, that the Genesis stories of the creation and fall were representations of the deepest truths about man and the universe in the form of myth rather than history, and were nonetheless valid for that. Indeed, it was essential to the defense of Christian truth to recognize and assert that these stories were not history, and not therefore in competition with the alternative accounts of anthropology or cosmology. Those who did not make this distinction were, we can now see, playing straight into the hands of Thomas Huxley and his friends.
To refute the charge of myths, Peter gives three proofs of the transfiguration, the testimony of sight, the testimony of hearing, and the testimony of physical presence. As to sight, the apostles were eyewitnesses of the Lord's majesty. John testified, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, John 1 verse 14. 1 verse 17. Then there was the testimony of hearing. The apostles heard the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This audible expression of honor for the Lord Jesus came to him from the excellent glory, that is, from the bright, shining glory cloud, called the Shekinah, which symbolized the presence of God. 1 verse 18. Speaking of James, John, and himself, Peter emphasizes that they distinctly heard the voice of God when they were with the Lord on the holy mountain. Here is the testimony of three witnesses, which according to Matthew 18 verse 16 is authoritative and competent. Finally, Peter adds the testimony of physical appearance, we were with him on the holy mountain. It was a real-life situation, there could be no question about that. We do not know the mountain on which the transfiguration took place. If it were identifiable, it would probably be littered with shrines by now. It is called the holy mountain not because it was intrinsically sacred, but because it was set apart as the site for a sacred event. 1 verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The OT prophets had predicted Christ's coming in power and great glory. The events on the Mount of Transfiguration confirmed those prophecies. What the apostles saw did not set aside the OT prophecies or make them any more certain, but simply added confirmation to the predictions. The apostles were given an advance glimpse of the glory of Christ's future kingdom. F.W. Grant's translation of the rest of verse 19 is helpful. To which ye do well in taking heed, as to a lamp that shineth in an obscure place, until the day dawn and the morning star ariseth in your hearts. Notice Grant's use of the parenthesis. According to his translation, we should link heed within your hearts. In other words, we should pay attention in our hearts. In the NKJV and many other versions, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, and this presents practical difficulties of interpretation. The prophetic word is the shining light. The dismal or dark place is the world. The dawning of day signals the end of this present church age, Romans 13 verse 12. The rising of the morning star pictures Christ's coming for his saints. Thus the sense of the passage is that we should always keep the prophetic word before us, treasuring it in our hearts, for it will serve as a light in this dark world until the age is ended and Christ appears in the clouds to take his waiting people home to heaven. 1 verse 20. In the final two verses of the chapter, Peter emphasizes that the prophetic scriptures originated with God and not with man, they were divinely inspired. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or origin margin. This statement has given rise to a great variety of interpretations. Some are absurd, such as the view that interpretation of the Bible is the right of the church alone and that individuals should not study it. Other explanations may be true statements, although not the meaning of this passage. For instance, it is true that no verse should be interpreted by itself, but in the light of the context and of all the rest of Scripture. But Peter here is dealing with the origin of the prophetic word, and not with the way men interpret it after it has been given. The point is that when the prophets sat down to write, they did not give their own private interpretation of events or their own conclusions. 
In other words interpretation does not refer to the explaining of the word by those of us who have the Bible in written form, rather it refers to the way in which the word came into being in the first place. D. T. Young writes. So the text, rightly understood, asserts that scripture is not human in its ultimate origin. It is God's interpretation, not man's. We often hear of certain statements of scripture as representing David's opinion, or Paul's opinion, or Peter's opinion. Yet, strictly speaking, we have no man's opinion in those holy writings. It is all God's interpretation of things. No prophecy of the scripture represents an individual's interpretation, men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The translation in the NKJV margin, origin, is thus quite accurate and, we believe, superior in context. 1 verse 21. This verse confirms the explanation just given in verse 20. For prophecy never came by the will of man. As someone has said, what they wrote was not a concoction of their own ideas, and it was not the result of human imagination, insight, or speculation. The fact is that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In some way which we cannot fully understand, God directed these men as to the very words to write, and yet he did not destroy the individuality or style of the writers. This is one of the key verses in the Bible on divine inspiration. In a day when many are denying the authority of the scriptures, it is important that we stand firmly for the verbal, plenary inspiration of the inerrant word. By verbal inspiration we mean that the words as originally penned by the forty or more human writers were God-breathed, see 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. God did not give a general outline or some basic ideas, then let the writers phrase them as they wished. The very words they wrote were given by the Holy Spirit. By plenary inspiration we mean that all the Bible is equally God-given from Genesis through Revelation. It is the Word of God, see 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. By inerrant we mean that the resultant Word of God is totally without error in the original, not only in doctrine, but in history, science, chronology, and all other areas.